when the Jews were exiled to Babylon and Jerusalem was destroyed and the populations were taken into exile, whatever religion it was that they worshipped should have ended right there. And it didn't. Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born? Like Dante, we're in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott. I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from and what comes next? Let's chat. This is a special opportunity because today I get to sit in person with two guests on the podcast, Madhavi Navadar, professor of Old Testament at St. Andrews School of Divinity, and T.J. Lang, professor of New Testament at St. Andrews. We're sitting here in Madhavi's office and on a beautiful Scottish day, and and we get to have a conversation amongst each other. Madhavi and TJ work very closely together. They're co-writing a book right now on God, and we're going to be talking about that. But I'm also, I think it's a great opportunity for them to kind of lead the conversation. What if we start rolling and just see where we come to? So one of the, like, what just came to me would be, like, a way that would be helpful for me to think about these questions, and grab the mic if you have an answer, uh, would be how many different conceptions of God are there in the Old Testament? Well, that's one of Probably as many books as there are in the Old Testament, if not more. Or as many people within those books. Uh, or as many people within those books. Say something like the Psalms, you know, I, I think they're probably... <laughs> it's 50 different perspectives, you know, understandings. Within the Psalms. Probably within the Psalms, because the Psalms are a composite book, and individual Psalms are composite texts, and they reflect different time periods of history. And Reinhard Kratz, who's a, a professor at Göttingen, he says that the Psalms narrates the entire history of Yahwism in the Hebrew Bible, and I think he's probably right about that. Uh-huh. So, I mean, any word, any name can be individuated it can be divided up into every time it's invoked it's different right and so like what's the principle of individuation what's the scale at which you're you're dividing up the different gods so i suppose it's it comes down to what is being asked of that god in any given text Mm -hmm. and what seems to be at the acknowledged scope of his power in a given text, or indeed his ability to act. And in some instances, it seems that this is a god who only acts on behalf of his city, or only acts on behalf of his king. In other instances, it's a god who acts internationally, apart from his people. And in some instances, it seems to be a a god who is in trouble, and people are curious about why he isn't acting. And so, I, I mean, I suppose in that sense, maybe these are just different perspectives on God, but um, the difference between a God who is asleep in something like Psalm 44 and isn't responding to his people in exile, 
um, where they're desperately calling him to engage in history on their behalf versus, I don't know, the God of one of the enthronement Psalms in the nineties, where he is the puppeteer of history. Mm -hmm. Those are in my mind, two very different gods. So I think in the, in the academic humanities, we're Mm -hmm. really good at complexifying things and we're also really good in the historical humanities at multiplying, at pluralizing what everybody talks about singularly. And yet, we're always going to end up having, at some scale, a sense of unity mm-hmm. and a sense of simplicity. What would be the minimum number of gods in the Old Testament that would make sense to you according to the scale and the taxonomy that you want to apply? Okay, that's that's a great question. Here, I think it does actually come down to divine names. And we have a tendency to simplify, I think, primarily because of our own traditions and the fact that the God in whom we believe is the God of Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, depending on how one goes. And so God just becomes this one thing. And, and I appreciate that, that we are often accused of making the simple complex um, for the sake of having a publishing career. (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, you know, I think there are instances where different divine names, let's say Yahweh, um, the personal name for the God of Israel, and the generic term either El or Elohim or El Elyon, there seems to be a real difference between gods and in a particular verse. You know, so something like Deuteronomy 32, I, I think it's eight and nine. I'm a Hebrew Bible scholar. And so unlike New Testament scholars who have verses and subverses at their fingers, but their appendix is smaller. You know, in this text, it talks about how El Elyon divides the world. And for every God, there is a nation. And then it says, and Yahweh's own people was Jacob. And there you seem to have a distinction of, of gods that we can smooth over, but it's very clear in the text. So it's, so it's not just that these are two different conceptions of God. It is that the same person is identifying these two different gods. That's exactly right. Yeah, okay. And in, in that instance, I, one of the reasons why I perhaps spoke about the complexity of divine notions in the Hebrew Bible is that we, we do, we're reading a text that was originally produced in a limited polytheistic culture that turned into a monotheistic one. And we see very obvious vestiges, that's not a word, uh, vestiges, vestiges vestiges of that polytheism in the text, not simply as imploring Israel not to worship other gods, but vestiges of the fact that there are different conceptions of how the world or the cosmos are divinely organized. Yeah. Yeah, So what's the earliest instance we have of the use of Yahweh? And what does it even look like? Like Yeah. Yeah. So as a personal name for a god, what's interesting about the name Yahweh is that it it doesn't appear in any other god lists in Levant at all. Whereas There are god lists? Yes. This is a genre? Yeah. Indeed. Okay. Um, either for the sake of translating or for bilinguals or or indeed for kind of syncretizing gods. And um, your storm god is this, my storm god is that, and we read each other's texts, and I now I know that we're speaking about the same god. And where would these be found? And inscribed uh, on yeah, clay so, tablets? Yeah, yeah, on, on inscribed on clay tablets or on you know, stone tablets. We have a, a number of godless from Ugarit, which is you know kind of an ancient Canaanite city-state in the second millennium. We have lots of them from um, Mesopotamia and Anatolia. 
Mongolia. But what's interesting in particular is the one from what we would call the Levant, or the ones that we do have in the Levant, don't mention Yahweh as, as a god amongst gods in that part of the, that part of the world. And so whereas everybody has a Hadad or an Adad or a storm god of some description, <laughs> there's no attempt to bring, there's, from the extant material that we have, there seems to be no knowledge of Yahweh or indeed a, a compunction to equate him with a, with another, another god, even and though we know that he's a storm god. Do these lists, are they all, are they full of elves? Yes, there, are, there yeah. are tons of L's, okay. right? Uh-huh. And there's L of this, and L of that, and L of Y, and L of B. Right. Um, and there are storm gods, and there are goddesses, and various things like that. Okay. And so what I think that tells us is that whatever the name Yahweh means, let's face it, you don't actually know, is that it whatever the meaning of the title is, is it doesn't imply, for example, his remit as some gods will have. So mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't mean storm god. It doesn't mean... Mm-hmm. Um, L, you know, it doesn't mean God as the name L does. So where we do find him is in a small inscription from a community of people who lived in what is present day Saudi Arabia. And he is known from two or three um, inscriptions. Stephanie Daly has a, a, a set of beautiful articles about this. And it seems that that is our earliest attestation to him sometime in the middle of the second millennium long before there was an Israel, and long before he shows up as a divine character in what we would consider to be the Levant. And what language is this? Uh, yeah, it's an Akkadian text. Okay. But again, it's it. he is referred to as YHW, which is how he often appears outside of Hebrew Bible when he does. Uh-huh. Um, certainly in a lot of the um, Aramaic texts from Egypt, from the middle of the first millennium, that's how he appears, Yahoo. And so that's not, he's not Yahoo in, in this, in these inscriptions, but he's Y-H-W. Is he gendered male? Do they say he? Uh, he's gendered male because the verbs are male. Okay. Um, okay. Absolutely. And what, I mean, what's interesting about that, again, is I think there are two conclusions, very basic conclusions. First is that whatever we want to say about him is he is not native to the Levant, which is interesting. And also that it does corroborate to one extent or another certain biblical texts that talk about him coming up from the desert, uh, like Judges 5. That's not to say that Judges 5 is, is a very early text, but this notion that somehow he too came from the desert is an interesting kind of corroboration of, of that textual witness. And, and indeed, a more interesting aspect of the Hebrew Bible, which is to insist that both Israel and Israel's God come into the land and aren't from the land. What's the theological significance of that, do you think? Hmm. I mean, not now. Like, what was the intended theological significance at the, at the, time. At the time of the composition of the relevant texts? Yeah. Not composition, but compositing. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. (laughs) Here's my guess. I think there are two ways of reading, let's say, that foreignness or that foreign aspect. One is part of or a result of the larger project in the Hebrew Bible, which is to paint indigenous inhabitants as profoundly... I was going to say unlawful. That's not the right word. But as religiously suspect. So think about all the ites in the Hebrew Bible, they are accused over and over again mm-hmm. of religious and moral corruption. Mm-hmm. And so 
I think there is a, a theme running throughout Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, that makes a distinction between those who are in the land and those who come into it. Mm-hmm. And even though Yahweh has claims to that land, I think there's probably a reason for saying that he too is not native. Mm-hmm. And that once there was a time when his name was unknown, like that's that's a very that's a very specific periodization, right? Where does it say? And this this was when men became to call upon the name of God. Yeah, yeah. First of all, that in Genesis, and then and then yeah. also, I mean, and also it's very very clear when in the two divine name stories in Exodus to Moses so uh-huh. that there's this idea that there is an unfolding revelation that goes on. It's so fascinating. So there's a there's a there is a geography that corresponds to periodization. Yes, I, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, not least because our authors are multiple authors, and, and and indeed our redactors of the texts who are going to give the Hebrew Bible its final shape, they are having to deal, unlike any other corpus in our possession. And this is not me saying that any of our texts are necessarily unique. That's a whole nother conversation, which I'm very happy to. <laughs> but we have authors who are having to tell a story over time and across multiple worlds and multiple lands. And in that respect, it has a kind of an epic nature to it that we just do not have from any other corpus of literature in our possession, because they aren't trying to do that thing. They aren't trying to make a large story that begins in Genesis and ends, at least in Hebrew Bible, with the end of two chronicles. Mm -hmm. Um, We may have law, we may have history, we may have wisdom from all of the accompanying ancient Near Eastern cultures, but no one has tried to put it into a story. And in that respect, even that story that involves God, and, you know, other than Esther and Song of Songs, every book does involve God, that obviously is also going to tell a story about God in that respect. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that I want to ask you is, I remember when we did that that class with the Emlets on theological anthropology, and you said the least, yeah. the least controversial thing to say about Jesus was that he was divine. Or it's unremarkable. It's unremarkable. That to, yeah, to, call, to call someone divine. to call somebody divine. God, yeah, and and uh, yeah, indeed, to call somebody God, and, and, and I think that would be really interesting to talk about because I think that would uh, probably not be something that most people because that's the debate. Oh my God, is he divine? Like, who cares? Of course, he's divine. Who is um, he? Yeah, as Monica said, I often emphasize with students that it is not remarkable to me in my reading of the New Testament that some early Christians would have extended the category of theos or God to Jesus. Because it was a word that could be applied to any manner of divine being or human. It was a word that could, yeah, be used for almost anything, in, including natural elements. But would it, yeah. among Jews? Yes, Moses is a god. Philo has Moses as a god, as a theos. Now, there was, in later sort of philosophical consideration, even an important distinction in, like, origin of Alexandria between theos and ha-theos. Mm. That is God without an article, so just God, maybe lowercase g, oh. and then God with an article, the God, like God, capital case, g. Mm-hmm. So making a distinction within the category of God between a lower and a higher version of that word. But the word God, yes, was extended to all sorts of entities, we might say. What is remarkable in the New Testament, and I think in the Gospels in different ways, and in Paul in different ways as well, is that you have this bounded identity between father and son, such that 
especially with the citation of um, Old Testament passages where Yahweh is acting. And Paul applies those passages to Jesus acting. And so what Yahweh was supposed to do, Jesus is now doing. And so again, the identity is bounded. So what Jesus does is Yahweh's stuff such that who they are and their action and their identity, I don't have a better word for you than a bounded identity. They do not develop this with any metaphysical precision. It's just then what God, the God of Israel was supposed to do, Jesus does, and as such is acting in the role of that entity. So you mean bound together? Like when God, when Jesus acts God, I and the Father are one. Uh And what I'm doing is what the Father's doing, and what the Father was said to be doing, I am now doing when I do this with this stuff. Madhavi, you want, yeah. And I I suppose the distinction there, which is quite interesting, is is not simply that as Jesus acts, God acts, because I, I can trace that story all the way back to any Near Eastern cosmology where kings act yes, and yeah, gods yeah. act on their behalf as representatives in, in, yeah. as representatives uh-huh. or indeed and so obey the king like you would obey the god because course. when the king's there the god's there. The, yeah. the god is there or indeed from Qumran where or you know some of our texts like jubilees where you know for every human thing there is an angelic equivalent so that there's this basic homology at work right and what i think is different in the new testament conception which tj has just talked about is that jesus is doing what yahweh does not that they're acting in parallel but as the hebrew bible old testament promises god will do so jesus does it and in that sense is not just bounded to him but is acting as you say he's doing yahweh stuff He's, he's acting in that respect, not as a representative, not as an earthly counterpart, but as God does, or as Yahweh does. And so in that sense, it's also kind of profoundly different than Moses coming down the mountain with horns on, which in the ancient Near East always indicates divine status. That's just another God. This is not what we're, this is not what's happening with, with Jesus, at least as the gospel narratives or, or indeed Paul are, are narrating. Is it immediate or is it like later than that this particular claim to the, being God in this way for Jesus uh, will set off alarm bells among monotheists, right? Like what, is it immediate? Like, oh, well, then you're talking about polytheism or yeah, I mean, is, I'm, I'm on, this is a great question. I'm on Jews, right? Right. I, I'm not, I'm not going to get too technical, but this is a great question to ask in Scotland because of the work of Larry Hurtado in Edinburgh, recently deceased, uh, Richard Bauckham here, I think to some extent, maybe even Tom Wright and others. It's been a very Scottish conversation to talk about a phrase that I don't like so much anymore, early high Christology. What I am convinced by with the work of Larry and others is that very early on, whatever they thought they were doing, how much they thought about what they were doing, they knew that it was okay to worship Jesus. And so these theological developments are not first theological, but based on experiential encounters and then worship patterns. And to call on the name of the Lord, which is something you only do to Yahweh, the curios about which Paul is talking about is the Yahweh in its uh, Hebrew Bible context. Mm-hmm. And there, there, Yahweh is one. In bits of Isaiah, he's super duper worried about it. Like, there is one, I am alone, there is no other. And all of a sudden, in the context of these Yahwistic passages from Isaiah and others, you're applying that confession to the Lord, to Jesus, 
which is what you were supposed to do to Yahweh. And that's just what you're doing. Again, without metaphysical clarification, Mm -hmm. but just within the context of worship, this is now Mm -hmm. what you do. Uh, It's not a question of polytheism or two gods. It's just this a sense of a bounded identity that when you call on Yahweh and you call on Jesus, you're calling on the one God. Uh And now we're going to have centuries long projects of trying to figure this out metaphysically. And you're going to figure out in all sorts of different ways and fight over it. And now people will die. (laughs) But as early as before Paul, you have these developments, it seems to me. Again, within religious experience and worship. So at what point did the name Yahweh prompt a metaphysical question? What a lot of you might want to say, we we will tell this story probably. Right, because I would say always, I think. Mm. But what's interesting for me is when it gets translated into Greek as ha-on which is technical platonic vocabulary. And it becomes the being one, the one who is. And it all of a sudden in its Greek translation prompts metaphysical questioning within the context of uh, platonic philosophy. And then you asked earlier about the gender of Yahweh, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting question. In the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord as one, is the one. I'll let Maudie translate that how she would prefer to in Hebrew. But in English, the word for oneness there is in Greek, I mean, sorry, in Greek is masculine. In John 10, 30, when Jesus says that I and the Father are one, which is one of the most important statements for later Christological developments, Mm. the word for one there is neuter. It is therefore the oneness in John 10.30 mm-hmm. is not defined on the level of gender, masculine or feminine gender, but a neuter oneness, which is another interesting moment where you're yeah, pressured to reflect on what is the nature of this father-son mm-hmm. unity. Mm-hmm. How do you want to translate the Shema, Madhavi, with respect to the oneness of God? Well, in my mind, the Shema is part of a different debate, which takes us back to our conversation about the early polytheism of the Hebrew Bible. And the, the Hebrew is ambiguous, but it can just as easily mean, yeah, yeah, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And it's, again, part of this kind of the, the germination process that is going to lead, let's say, to the flower of, of the monotheistic statements in Second Isaiah, where we have, you know, I am the first, I am the last. Aside from me, there is no God. There are no other gods. So in that sense, it's not a, it's not a question of, of oneness. And something that has been very interesting about the book that we were working on, and indeed the class that we taught to kind of find our texts, was precisely, um, I might say this, let's call it a metaphysical turn, or perhaps a, a, a philosophical turn, which is what happens to our Hebrew Bible traditions when they begin to be filtered through the concerns of Greek philosophy. And this is, of course, something that's been recognized for a long time. Hellenism and Judaism is a debate that has been raging in our field for a century. But it's very interesting to see how texts that mean one thing in, let's call it a Semitic context, can mean something very different um, when read through either Greek lenses or when once translated. 
and some of the um, language ambiguities that are provided in Greek that simply doesn't exist in Hebrew or, or even in the more complex Semitic languages like Akkadian. And it's the, they don't force the metaphysical question, whereas I think Greek can, and then the accompanying culture <laughs> that comes with the language will just will go ahead and ask those questions. And so by the time we get, I mean, let's leave Paul and Jesus out of this for the time being, but you can see it immediately in somebody like Philo of Alexandria, who's a first century Jew, completely Hellenized, who is a monotheistic Jew who lives in Alexandria and his, has two mistresses, uh, Greek philosophy and his Jewish identity, and can speak of the single God, but because of probably centuries of development and the personification of wisdom, like Proverbs 8, indeed mm. personification of Torah, as we see in passages from Ben Sarah, sorry, from Ben Syrah, and there is movement and there is room, even in this notion of monotheism, to have other aspects. Mm -hmm. So that, again, the fact that Jesus is divine is not the problem mm -hmm. for Jews of the first century, or the Jews who didn't believe him. Um, it's it's the fact that... It's the claims he makes vis-a-vis -vis the Father. It's the claims he makes vis-a-vis -vis the Father. And it's not even that he's a failed Messiah. I mean, they had, there were gazillions of failed Messiahs, right? Okay, you know, that's the, it's, it's weird that he gets crucified. And yes, that is a theological scandal. But it's that, it's that, that binding of his actions and the actions of Yahweh or the Kurios that there start to be kind of profound divisions mm -hmm. between this group of sectarian Jews and what we might call um, the various strands of mainstream Judaism. Yeah, and I want to intervene with a rant. Okay. Um, but you talked about, you, you, we, and we, we've been through this many times, Philo, thoroughly Hellenized. Yeah. This Hellenization thesis, I won't go into the details of it, but it's important to remember with these metaphysical questions that we only receive the words of Jesus and the New Testament in Greek. Yeah. So, and there are possibilities within Greek grammar and language that are just so different than what can be expressed in Hebrew Aramaic yeah. and that activate associations with philosophical questions. Mm -hmm. And I, um, another rant, avoid... But I, when, I, before you move on, like, yeah. just, just to be explicit, what you're saying is that Jesus didn't speak Greek and that when we ask ourselves what would he have used in Aramaic or Hebrew for these words, it opens up a different philosophical universe? Well, yes. I mean, there is a famous tradition at St. Andrews for wondering the words of Jesus in Aramaic. Someone who used to work here that and tried to reproduce the Aramaic words of Jesus, which happy for that to happen. But the way in which we have received the words of Jesus is in Greek. Mm -hmm. And the way in which... And that's normative within Christian theology? Normative yes. would not be the word. It, uh, fact. Yeah. If you can find me an Aramaic version of Jesus' words, I would happily consider it and explore it. But Jesus comes to us in Greek. He comes to us in translation. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he comes to us in words that intervene in philosophical debates, mm -hmm. whether the Jesus who spoke Aramaic knew it or not. Mm -hmm. And so I say this all the time with the question of when John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, God was the Logos. Whether John or whoever wrote those words knew it or not, they stumbled into a massive philosophical debate mm -hmm. about Lagos. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the author probably knew a bit about that theological debate, philosophical debate, but it doesn't matter. that Those words intervene in it mm -hmm. and are a serious 
philosophical offering mm -hmm. about Logos creation and the relationship of Logos reason and God. Mm -hmm. uh, th this is a major philosophical intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one way of talking about, I think, the one and the many is inscribed in the father-son question of the relationship of the father and the son. And it's going to be one, if you go sort of a subordinationist route, the one thing we know about fathers is there once was a time when fathers didn't have sons. And the one thing we know about sons is there once was a time when sons weren't sons because they needed to be born. And language of birthing and generation and creation is applied to the son as it was applied to wisdom before the son and other entities. So is the son a creature? And what does that mean for the oneness of God? One what's called orthodox solution will be that the father is eternally father, and therefore the son is eternally son, and therefore there never was a time when there was a father without a son and a son without the father. Mm -hmm. Other reasoning will be like uh, the son is logos, which is the son is word, or I think better reason. And the father could never have been without his reason. Therefore, the one God is always father and son and logos. And so there is this one plus one equals one binitarian dynamic that the spirit is going to get slotted into in later centuries when the first problem of father and son has been sorted, that it's always there. And But there will be other attempts. I mean, even in Philo Alexandria in the first century, you have a father and then you have a logos, the reason who straddles the divide between uncreated and created. This is similar to what are the standard, what we call demiurgic mm. traditions within Platonic philosophy, where you've got a principle that's above everything else. And to protect that principle from all this messiness, you have a subordinate lower principle that is what's called a creature because it's generated from the principle, but then is responsible for the creation of all things in various, all sorts of hierarchies. And lots of things create things and create things and create things. Anyway, but this this is precisely the philosophical question of the one and the many. And then what I'm describing is the particular Christian versions of intervening in that conversation, mm -hmm. which are philosophically serious. And this is what I wanted to say earlier. We talk about Christian theology, which I think, unfortunately and harmfully, amputates the serious Christian ideas from the philosophical conversations around it, mm -hmm. of which it is informed and in which it is intervening mm -hmm. in various, in very serious philosophical ways. I'd be happy to get rid of the word theology altogether and just talk mm -hmm. about early Christian philosophy and the seriousness of these philosophical engagements within the ideas around them and mm -hmm. radical ones. Mm -hmm. The amazing thing I mean, that would then entail a substantial expansion of our current understanding of philosophy, too, right? No. Would be. No? What they're doing is just philosophy. It's cosmology. It's physics. It's stuff about God. Philosophy is about a way of life in the world. And Christians have a particular and radical version of it. I'm sounding a yeah, bit I, too well, much like an apologist. Well, no, I, I mean, but, but that, that is an expansion upon the current disciplinary understanding of philosophy, unless you're Pierre Hadot or one of his followers. I guess I am. Yeah. Because I don't think it's an expansion. Yeah. I think what Christians and Jewish people like Philo and others are saying are just serious confrontations about physics, ethics, 
cosmology with their stoic, platonic, oh, they're all mixed up together neighbors. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're presenting a vision of the world in a way to live in it that becomes a pretty successful and viable option within the Roman world and, and beyond. So I, I disagree that it's an expansion of the word philosophy. They, 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 these are philosophers. That's how they understood themselves. That's how they were. The, the word theology is, it has a long and complicated history, but none of our New Testament authors or author, authors, even until the fourth century, would have thought of themselves as theologians in the, the great sense of theologos. They were philosophers. Mm-hmm. That's just what they were. That's funny because it reminds me of this would have probably been Christmas holiday 2003, driving around town doing errands with you listening to Wilco in Durham, North Carolina. And when the theologian song came on, you turned to me, you were like, listen to this, Ryan, listen to this. Theologians don't know nothing about my soul. And of course I was like, yeah, TJ, whatever. Theology is the queen of the sciences. But it seems like that has been fulfilled in your current understanding of the, well, the the irrelevance of theology for early Christianity. (laughs) (laughs) Let's listen to it. There we go. So, no. (laughs) My complaint is... (laughs) And I, I'm, I probably should be tamer and milder in how I'm describing this. It's, my complaint is simply how theology, using the word, annexes that discourse from the philosophical conversations, again, about physics, ethics, mm-hmm. cosmology, because that, how to live a life in this world, what this world is, who God is, where God is, what happens when bits of God get inside you, and what that means, these are just ancient philosophical questions. And Christian theologians and Jewish Christian philosophers and Jewish philosophers were advancing really interesting and provocative visions for how to answer these questions. And they belong to the world of they belong to the fight within Platonism, Stoicism, Epicureanism, all these things. And they they um yeah, again I'm I am a Christian. And I, I feel like I'm sounding too apologetic right now. No. Uh, but in the first couple centuries, like what they achieved was philosophically remarkable. They were weird, weird ideas about physics, cosmology, and ethics. And they achieved quite a bit. Uh, look at our world today. I don't have any Stoic friends who call themselves Stoics and order their lives accordingly. But a lot of my friends still show up at church on Sundays. Can I say something? Jeez, that is going to not come off so great. (laughs) (laughs) To go back to the original question, I mean, it strikes me first, I mean, looking at Christianity, I'm sorry again, going back to the original question that Ryan had is that, you know, would it involve an expansion of the notion of philosophy? I'm not sure it would, but I think it would require a little bit of humility in both of our disciplines. Humility from philosophers to recognize that the development of thought around person and divinity of Jesus is as philosophic complex as their Plato's and their Aristotle's, and that it is something deserving of inquiry in as those two great pillars are as well. It would require from us, however, 
an acknowledgement that our discussions are one amongst many, and that the debates of early Christianity are Near Eastern Greco-Roman debates that everybody was having, and that whilst Christianity or the debates around Christianity are intervening in this conversation, I think we have to acknowledge that it's part of the conversation in the first place. And there, I think from philosophers, there would have to be academic humility, and from us, there would have to be theological humility. And perhaps we did win out, you know, there are no Stoics running about, but nonetheless, it, well, right, cognitive behavioral therapy, I, I think I'm basically a stoic. But, you know, I, 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 think it, it just, I think it requires all of us to sit down and think very, very carefully about what sort of genealogies we're creating for this material, what we're claiming to it. And, I, you know, I spoke earlier about my frustration with people saying, you know, Hebrew Bible is unique in this respect. The same thing with New Testament. It drives me up the wall. Um, because yes, there are profound interventions in these conversations, um, but they are conversations. And to somehow rarefy these texts as separate from the cultures that produce them, I think is just doing them a disservice. It's doing us a disservice because we don't understand where we came from. Uh, I want to talk about well, genealogies. Can I? Yes. Let me do this. Yeah. I, I, no. No. I have. And I have. I have a good follow up that'll set you up for things that'll make your administrators happy. Okay. This needs to be said. We've got to talk about narratives of progress and narratives of decline when it comes to accounts of Christian origins. And I mentioned earlier, I think, the Hellenization thesis, and I have friends on one side of that debate who think, you know, as soon as we departed, I mean, even if it's like Harnax, who some people may know, you know, who thought that if we could just peel back the the husks and get to the kernel, and we would understand that um, Christianity is about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of, of man. And if we could all just get along, it's a beautiful vision for society. Now, that was a, a noble idea to allow us to not kill one another, which we have not lived up to. But the idea that if we could just get back to Palestine and Jesus, Aramaic Jesus, and we just learned to love one another, and um, that the developments within Christian theology and doctrine, as it expanded in new cultures, new places, within new languages, not just Greek and eventually Latin, but Armenian and Syriac and Aramaic and all sorts of interesting worlds of thought. I think one of the powerful aspects of Christianity has been its ability to embody new worlds of thought and cultures and find new ways of thinking itself. With respect to Hellenism, which dominates much of Western thinking, the Greek version of Christianity, I do not view it as a story of decline, but simply taking up shop and uh, setting up tent and new cultural world with a new language and vocabulary for thinking itself out. And whether you like it or not, these are just historical facts. We can't undo them. And how we relate to them will be you know, a question for... Um, uh, each individual to make up, but I depart from my colleagues who think that if we could just go back and understand the temple, that we could figure out Jesus's relationship with the Father or something like that. I actually personally find Greek metaphysics far more familiar than temple culture. I've never been to a temple. I've never slaughtered an animal. Go to India. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, so, I can I just went one thing yeah. fast. I mean, I, I mean, TJ always speaks eloquently about these things, and, and I think what's 
really important to acknowledge is that this isn't just a Christian phenomenon, because I could make mm -hmm. exactly the same mm -hmm. statement about Hebrew Bible. There is absolutely no reason why we should have a Hebrew Bible Old Testament, because when the Jews were exiled to Babylon and Jerusalem was destroyed, and the city, you know, and the populations were taken into exile, whatever religion it was that they worshipped should have ended right there, as, you know, it did with the various other nations around. And it didn't. Uh, now, everybody has different, or various people have different explanations for what that is, but one of them has to be that ability to adapt and engage and change with the situations around them. And in the case of Babylon, the great example is how to survive the experience of Babylon. It's not the cognitive problem of a crucified man who's supposed to be the Messiah, but I think it, it poses similar theological problems that have to be worked out. The language in Hebrew Bible is not a philosophical language because that's not the language of the time. But nonetheless, I would say the theological questions that were raised or the questions that exile will raise or Assyrian domination or Babylonian domination or indeed Persian or the continuation of Persian domination just constantly bombards our thinkers with ideas that they have to work out. By the time we get to first century Judaism, of which, you know, Christianity is a part, we have the rise of apocalyptic, we have the rise of messianism, we have the rise of eschatology, all of which had to happen in the first place. Otherwise, there would definitely have not been a thought space for Jesus. And that, I think, is testimony to the fact that our authors, sometimes against great odds and sometimes at great expense to any number of, of different theological positions, just adapt as necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, it seems to me then that this way of thinking, it's, it's, it's similar to what Remy Bragg did in his book, Eccentric Culture, which was kind of his amicus brief to the EU about the status of Europe and Europe, what it means to be European. And, and, mm -hmm. and his thesis there is that, is that to continue to consider European heritage as central to the EU is not to not to think of it as heritage, because what European is, is it's a constantly other assimilating, but then also being changed by what is outside of it. He claims that this is unique to European culture, but I think you're, I mean, you're both making arguments, one in New Testament, one in Old Testament, that this is what happens. And so it strikes me that, like, I mean, it seems like divinity and like biblical studies are in this unique uniquely protected space right now here in British university system and particularly at St. Andrews. But the entire discipline, at least, is, you know, in a kind of uh, demographic crisis, a crisis of broader patterns of secularization. And one response is to be like, oh, well, like, we can be multicultural, like, we can do the diversity thing, too. But in a way that leaves behind the disciplinary expertise. But what you're saying is that fundamental to these traditions that we study is already a multiculturalism. And so it's not making like a diversity move to say that this is profoundly relevant to our students and this will teach our students because the content of what we're teaching is not Western heritage, it's not European heritage. And it's not even Christian heritage in the sense that it's not owned by Christianity, right? Is that so? I don't know. That's that's my like pitch to the St. Andrews administrators the next time they're like, stop teaching your subject. 
I mean, I so much to say to that. Too much to say to that. I mean, I, to go back to a, an earlier bet, though. I mean, what we were describing about traditions, you know, is what I talk about is um, the paradox of tradition, and you could apply it to the paradox of God, which is, you know, the paradox of tradition is tradition says to itself that we're we're still the same, we're always the same, while at the same time always having to change if it is to be alive, while somehow figuring out and fighting about ways to be recognizable to itself across time. It's incredibly complicated. And Christian and Jewish traditions, the ones we're most familiar with, have been exceptionally durable in their ability to claim the past, claim their heritage, while at the same time forging new modes of thought and being and ways of living and adapting in the world around them. Now, with respect to the point about multiculturalism, is that the word you used? Or Yeah, or making a diversity play or, yeah. I mean, this, this is what's so exciting about... To me, for me, Christianity that I study, again, I mentioned this earlier, you know, we only encounter the words of Jesus in Greek, and he did not speak Greek, which is already at the base of our tradition, an endorsement of translation, an endorsement of taking up powerful modes of thought in new cultural worlds and languages. Our great entrepreneur of Christianity was the Apostle Paul who for some 20 to 30 years variously wandered around the Mediterranean among the people whose cultures and worlds he had to learn as he moved, set up camps, somehow convinced them to give their lives, to kill their gods, destroy their gods, and give themselves to an executed Galilean peasant, which is the weirdest thing I can imagine how this was successful. And he did it, and I suspect he was so successful because his multicultural, if we want to use that word, sociological translation ability. Uh, he knew how to relate to people from who were other. And to go back to something else, I, I also, you know, Paul is my friend. He wakes me up at night. I've lived with him for as a scholar for many years now. You know, I think he also found many of these people disgusting early on and had to work. The, the non-Jews is non-Jewish. The people he gave his life to, I, 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 my guess is that early on, especially he, all of his cultural instincts would have been to despise them and to be disgusted by them. And he learned to live with them, which I find personally yeah, to be an interesting tutelage to reflect on in my own life for people who I find difficult and challenging to live with. Well, I have a challenging day. <laughs> well, I can't speak to Paul. I don't wake up thinking about Paul. But I think our discipline is at a profound point of crisis at the moment and saying we're at a crossroads would be a nice way of putting it and you know i, I teach a class and tj's joining me every once in a while on the bible and contemporary culture and i think that's very interesting to see just in terms of the way that the bible is being used but we have students who come having really never really opened a bible at this point not knowing what's there and i think they find the complexity of the bible compelling um, a text that humbles me all the time. You like to, the moral complexity as well. Uh, yeah. Everything yeah. about it. The moral complexity, the literary complexity, the complexity of words. TJ sometimes when he teaches Paul in one of my creation classes, he talks about how weird Paul is. And I'm sure that's right, because it's not it's not our world. I think what we do as biblical scholars, above and beyond our own independent research, which is of course very interested interesting to us individually is that we are 
opening up a window into a world that everybody assumes they know and very rarely do they know it mm-hmm. uh, and showing them the complexity of that and i hadn't thought about it in the way that you put it ryan but i i, I think that's right just that there's such a profound unwillingness to settle in scripture whether that's jewish scripture or christian scripture nothing is black and white everything is gray and when we try to superimpose order on it, it just always comes back at us and wins. And that, I find, as a scholar, extremely compelling. Um, that's why I get up and come to work every morning, um, because I get to read a text that is just so much smarter than I am. <laughs> In that respect, and, and we've chosen the subject of God because it's it's you know something we enjoy talking about. But again, because... You know, here there are a hundred books about God over here on my bookshelves, but the fact that if you, if you are trying to tell the story, whether we're trying to tell one version of the story, it's actually really difficult to do so because there are always bits that we leave out and there are always bits where we've had to simplify. And there are some points where we're like, actually, we have nothing to say to each other on this one topic. Um, even though there are other places where we can't, it's un, we found it extraordinary, the point at which the, the story just kind of continues on. Um, so I, and I think that's a testimony, not just to, to the subject, but it's a testimony to, to our texts. And then convincing our administrators of that is, is another question. They just should come to our class. Suppose that we were able to survey 100 biblical study scholars mm-hmm. around the world and ask them, what is the age of humanity? What do you think the average would be or median? 80,000 years, 100,000 years, 200,000 years, 400,000 years. Do they think about this? No. No, that's not fair. Not in circles that we now inhabit, I think is the answer to that. I think there are some places, if you spoke to my neighbor, Andrew Torrance, I think there are certain circles for whom that is still a very important question because it comes down to a certain question of the veracity of Bible. But I don't see us asking that question anymore. I think, I also think that there are some really interesting theological questions about how we answer this with respect to creation and what science is teaching us or showing us about if the earth or humanity is as old as it may seem. You just threw some numbers out of me that don't make sense to me. I can't even conceive 80,000 years, but let's just pretend that something like that is approximately the case. Not um, the earth, not the earth. No, I, I no, like homo sapiens yeah, specifically, yeah, specifically. Yeah, yeah, okay. But still like, prior to that, we've still got a whole lot of violence and death in the creaturely realm, which I think is a really interesting theological question for people thinking theologically about creation and what God has done. Mm-hmm. And when this violent chaos ensued and why, and how we account for that whenever we put homo sapiens or however we're going to think about, however you're going to give an account of an Adam from mm-hmm. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Genesis 1 and 2, how you're going to tell that story. I, I find these to be really fascinating theological questions within the domain of, let's call it Christian philosophy um, of the cosmos. And I find them strangely ignored. So like, would it make a difference to, especially like Hebrew Bible scholars, would it necessarily shift the historical imagination to wake up every day and think that the election of the people of Israel happened 300 and 
72,000 years into human history? I may not be the right person to ask this question. In fact, I know I'm not the right person to ask this question, but my gut instinct is to say probably not. I think that where we are in biblical studies at the moment is at a place where what is important is what the election achieves rather than when the election happened. Um, Simply because we have had to rethink so many of our historical givens that to tether the events of Hebrew Bible in actual history destabilizes it a bit. And I, my, I think many in biblical studies, I can't say all, but I think many in biblical studies have turned instead to look at just the historical narrative of the Hebrew Bible and try to understand that rather than trying to then map it on to our own historical narrative. So what's the status of, you know, what I learned in graduate school, which is that the Israelite religion, such as it was in various stages, is an axial age phenomenon. Yeah, great. I do love a good axial age. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is fundamental to Charles Taylor's thinking. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm going to love it. I wish Jan Osman, it'd be great to have him here. Is he here? No. Oh, he's in. Oh, his books are. I think that there is something in the water in the second half of the first millennium BC, but it's it's something that I would not extend to the Far East, as at least I understand kind of the original axial archery. That things are just afoot in the ancient Mediterranean, but that is not Israelite religion. That mm-hmm. is the move out of Israelite religion into Judaism. And that is a very interesting conversation, mm-hmm. but it's not the religion of the Hebrew Bible. And so I am... Wait, do you mean the religion of the Hebrew Bible or the religion behind? Uh, probably, I mean, certainly the second of those two. Behind. Behind. Yes. And I might even make an argument that it is not the religion of the Hebrew Bible either, because not even late Second Temple Judaism is the religion of the Hebrew Bible. Not least, again, because of some of these big ologies that develop, you know, that, that turn this uh, religion of a first millennium group into a religion of, a, of the religions of late first millennium and early common era, uh, eschatology, philosophy, <laughs> you know, apocalyptic. We have cosmology, obviously, but uh, so all of that is to say, rather around the bush, that I think something like an axial age is an interesting idea to think about, that they're, they're kind of large shifts that we see taking place. But in my mind, none, right. of, none of that is actually reflected in Hebrew Bible. One of my all-time favorite works of literature is every single story that Ted Chiang has written. And he's often considered a science fiction writer, but he's more like speculative fiction. And he has this story called the Tower of Babel. Mm. And what he imagines there is that the motivation for most of the people working on the Tower of Babel is that they want to be closer to the Lord. They're not like they are devout. They're building a temple. Yeah. But like, and so is there any potential for that to, like, could you give an explanation of that based on what you know of early 
religion? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. You build a temple, you, I mean, you build a monument, and you know, have Babylon, the Bab Eli or Elon, is the gates of the gods. You know, in in that respect, any active building is uh, is a religious statement, and it's I mean, all monumental building is done in the name of the gods, and so absolutely. So that doesn't, I mean, as an explanation of what what might be going on in the Babylon in, mm-hmm. in the Babylon story in Genesis, or behind that story, I mean, that that makes perfect sense to me. And indeed, uh, the problem in Genesis is not with the people; it's with God's objection to it. Um, and I certainly mm-hmm. all those stories in one to eleven, to one extent or another, touch on this. It's more relevant than I thought. Touch on the blurring between human and divine. People in our classes always say, oh, Adam and Eve were expelled because they ate the apple. That is not what Genesis says. They were expelled from the garden because now they knew that they could eat from the tree of life, having eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and were, are, now are like gods, knowing good and evil. And indeed in Babylon, or the story of the Tower of Babel, God says, look, now there is nothing that will stop them. And so it's almost a kind of a divine anxiety rather than acts of impiety, even though I think clearly what happens in Eden is an act of human disobedience. The thing that came to mind is the subsequent history of Christian architecture. And I was thinking of Cathedral, Durham Cathedral, yeah, yeah. like where I worked and we would picnic overlooking Durham Cathedral. Yeah. And you look at it and you think that in the 10th century, some people arrived there and thought, like, let's big some, let's build something huge. We're not going to be alive when it's completed, but may the Lord come back and find us building it to Him. Which is a really interesting juxtaposition with Babel. Mm-hmm. I that's not how that story is presented, but nonetheless, I you know maybe it's Pollyannish, but I have trust that those builders of those cathedrals they wanted the Lord to find them building this to him when when he came back, Mm -hmm. even if it was only a third of the way completed. Um, And also, like, what is a ziggurat? Other, I mean, a ziggurat is just, is a temple. And so we call it a tower, but if the basis is is the ziggurat, which everybody assumes it is, I mean, people are just building sacred architecture. And going, you know, going back to the cathedrals, you know, it's interesting how many of them have stars in precisely those elements, you know, in terms of the direction of where is heaven, yeah. is that they, they manufacture heaven, you know, and if you look at the dome, if you, you know, look at the Duomo in Florence, and they, they painted heaven for you right there, and forget Dante, let's go look at it. Well, nobody can read Dante anyway, but, you know, there's a way of manufacturing that so it is up, but also present, you know, I mean, again, that, that is, that's always that constant yeah. conflict of... And I, I think I've told you, you, you know the story of, of my children with the St. Andrew's Cathedral, where, you know, they go to a Catholic school, and they think they're Catholic, even though they're not. And it was a couple of years ago, and we were wandering, wandering around the cathedral grounds, and Penelope remembered Durham Cathedral, yes. which is just beautiful. Yeah. And she was just, what, what happened to this place? And so I think it was the first time. What, what did happen to it? Uh, John Knox. John Knox a happened. And they uh, burnt it to the Oh, really? Knox, it was intentional. Oh, yes. John Knox preached a sermon right across the street and then the about burnt, Jesus, uh, uh, temper tan- uh, his temple tantrum. And they went and they just swore down. Right. And I told Penelope the story of Protestantism and the structures of honor. And she was like, I am not a Protestant. <laughs> I am not a Protestant. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. She, <laughs> anyone who would do something to that place, she wanted nothing to do with. But yeah, no, it was it was John Knox. Hmm. If you could 
I've been learning just through reading about this deep history stuff, just mm. some of the authors I read have been calling attention to the ways that archaeology has been so, like what we know archaeologically has been so shaped by funding mm. and by the, the sources of the funding. And, you know, most of what everybody thought they knew about the history of Homo sapiens was based on European archaeology. And then now there's this huge transformation happening in the U.S., in North America, where there are all these sites that could only be paleontological sites because humans weren't in North America before 10,000 BC. And now, like these archaeologists, now that we know that they were there 20,000, maybe even 40, maybe 60, maybe 100,000 years, that we're going back to, like these archaeologists are going back, anthropologists going back to the paleontological sites and treating them as places where you might find human artifacts and they're finding them. So in the in the field of like biblical archaeology, if you could redirect resources, what would be the new frontier? Okay, but that's a great question, and and I should say, I and mean, this is this is definitely definitely outside of the archaeological training that I've had. But in Israel, I know that there is renewed interest in early archaeology of the land in a way that just, just before Judaism, before Jews, before God, um, mm-hmm. you know, just starting to dig sites that once upon a time nobody would have been interested in because they just didn't think it was important. And so I, I think there is a, a lot more interest going into that area in, in, in general. Archaeology and biblical studies, and, and I can't speak for New Testament, for certainly for Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, has just been uh, plagued by our search for the Bible and the, the criticism of biblical archaeologists that there's a spade in one hand and a Bible in another, mm-hmm. and quite apart from the kind of colonial aspects of, you know, everybody, it was Chicago, it was Germany, there was the great European empires in there universities that were digging up the Holy Land. But everybody was going in search of proving the Bible, and it meant that they just destroyed evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, two great examples of that. If you go to Megiddo, this is, of course, Armageddon, but Megiddo, you see the huge Chicago cut. Um, they just cut through the tell so that they wouldn't have to take the time to do layer by layer and just destroy it. Um, because you can't, you can look at layers from a huge cut like that, but of course, it's, there's nothing scientific about it. And so there's this kind of impatience for trying to find David. So this was even after the development of modern archaeological methods? Oh, yes. I mean, this was part of the development of modern archaeology because they just wanted to find David. Or and another great example is, is because our, our textual record from the period is so limited, um, people just didn't care about the Persian period because what could have happened in the Persian period? Well, now we know that a lot happened in the Persian period, and not least probably the, the collection of our Pentateuch, the, the actual Bible itself, all took place in the Persian period. But in every major site, we just destroyed it because we thought it was useless. Mm. And so one place where I have dug, I mean, just as a, as a, a student, was at, at Tel Azeka, which is dug by Tel Aviv and um Heidelberg, and it was a pristine site. Nobody had dug it. It's mentioned in the Bible, and so we went in hoping that we were going to find a beautiful kind of Babylonian or Assyrian destruction layer. We found nothing of the like. We found a beautiful second millennium kind of destruction layer, and we found a absolutely stunning Persian layer, which in this respect is a dime a dozen. We're not a dime a dozen, quite the opposite. You know, it's like it's so rare to find those mm. things. 
So that's a very long-winded way of Ryan just saying that I think, again, we have to kind of go back to these, these areas, acknowledge that we've destroyed what we've destroyed, that we will never get that back, but to realize that we have to dig them layer by layer, that it's going to be expensive, it's going to take time, and that we may not always find the Bible when we do. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty, of course, is that so much of the money for biblical archaeology comes from conservative institutions in the States. What about, like, just regionally? I mean, would it, like, is there a potential that digging in, like, really far east or digging in northern Africa would, I mean, it seems like no matter how far back you go, the last 40 years of historical scholarship have shown that the world was far more interconnected than, than we thought. Yeah, sure. You know, what, like, is anybody doing that? Is anybody saying, I'm a kind of biblical era archaeologist, but I'm going to go dig in North Africa and kind of see, I'm going to learn everything I can learn about North African stuff, see what the potential connections are, and, you know, is... Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean what, what what they I mean what they may do is you know they they may kind of sharpen their spade again because of technological do ultra you know do you know satellites pictures and seeing where things are it means that we're not just kind of digging blindly we, you know we kind of know where we're going you might find Moses you might find Moses on Mount Sinai but I I, I mean I I think I mean my suspicion is that people who are being trained properly in archaeology and are doing archaeology of the Levant are now receiving a much wider education than they might have once upon a time. That doesn't start, you know, in the 12th century when we assume Joshua, you know, came in and destroyed all the Canaanite cities. I don't think there's a way that we're going to be able to go find Abraham, but, you know, there is a huge debate about, you know, when we find settlements without pig bones, what does that mean? I just don't know what it means. Uh, but it's interesting that we have settlements starting in a certain period without pig bones. And so I, I think as a discipline, it's getting much better. But there is there is a long way to go. And it, it, even more so than other fields of archaeology, it is tainted by the interests of previous diggers and the implications of where the money comes from. TJ, where is heaven? Um, in my heart (laughs) where's heaven that is a a great question i over the last two years have worried that question worried about that question in really fascinating ways began during the pandemic when i was wasting my life away uh in a room that fortunately overlooks the sea and one morning i um arrested myself from my uh waste of a life watching youtube and so tj you, you've got it you've got you've got to change man i gave myself an own, my own inter- intervention and i decided to worry about the cosmos about the structure of the world and so i gathered everything i could find from the ancient world about god and about what people thought about the world and began to wonder with them about where it was what it was really interested in the furniture up there mm-hmm. and i said up there which always indicate which indicates already that i've made such some judgment about where it is yeah i as a, i think i've already said i am a christian and i say you know seated at the right hand is where jesus is um i don't know ryan but what i do know is that the people that i study were really interested in the question and they looked up to wonder and they looked at the stars and the moon, which changes, which was presumably for many of them a portal, uh, an entry and exit point, uh, especially for demons mm-hmm. who are made of air and were good often. 
uh, for Christians, usually bad, and they might get inside you, which is really scary when they get inside you. The sun, as I overlooked the ocean, the sea every day, rises in one place and sets in another, and it's different every day. And those are also entry points and exit points for many people. If you want to get to Hades or wherever it is, sticks, you know, you take a boat. And when you get to the end of the portal, somehow you find your way on the other side of it. Where is heaven, Ryan? I don't know. But it's a really interesting question. Is it a place? For who? For Paul. Yeah, he went up there. So Paul is one of our great physicists. Mm-hmm. An incredibly accomplished physicist of the cosmos. Because he took a trip to the third heaven. Whether he had more heavens, I don't know. He went to the third one. He wasn't <laughs> sure if he went there in his body or out of his body, which is another interesting thing, which uh, has questions about physics mm-hmm. and uh, mind, body, soul experiences and who you are and whether you can somehow exit yourself or whether you've got to take your body up there and what has to happen. But yeah, so Paul is one of our great physicists of the cosmos and he went up there and he saw it and it was such a place that he can't tell you much more about it. <laughs> I mean, it's a gloriously provocative question. I mean, of course, two obvious antecedents to that are Enoch, the character, who is, isn't a pole, you know, isn't a person to whom we ascribe the birth of a religion, but, you know, he also goes up and he sees things. And, and of course, the, the, even before that, historically speaking, rather than, uh, chronologically speaking, is is Ezekiel. And I think there's a concept that one can get into the heavens, plural, in the Semitic tradition, or the Hebrew Bible tradition that, that is up for debate in the New Testament. But it's a place that, as a human, one usually goes in vision form. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting to me that there's something about the human body that means that it's very difficult to get up there. And of course, there are exceptions. But Paul's not sure. Indeed. And Elijah's an exception, and Enoch's the exception. Mm -hmm. Uh, But not even Moses goes up to heaven. He goes on top Mm -hmm. of a mountain in physical form, and then he comes back, you know, horning light. So it's... We call these mystical, which maybe whatever. But, you know, these were like, you know, I prefer to regard Paul as like the David Attenborough of the heavenly realm. Hummingbirds. But I mean, when these cosmologists in the ancient world, they really did think in these simply material terms of like, what are these demons, angels made of? Like what sort of ether um, can you see it? How does it change? How do they get from one place to another? Why are they so dangerous or so helpful? What do they know? Like, why is Hermes so fast at getting places? Like, where does Zeus come from? He comes from heaven and he comes from Mount Olympus. Where's Mount Olympus? Well, I don't know. We've never been to the top of it. It's up there. These were the questions they asked. And it makes me... It makes me sad for myself and all of us that we've lost that. I think a lot of the um, imagination to look up and look across and read the world and think about what it means and why it is the way it is. I mean, for ancient figures, the cosmos, the word cosmos is the word for ornament. The world is decorated and it's beautiful. The stars are there, and they move, and you can follow them, study them, and think about them. And when you look at one, you ask the question, what does this mean about what they are and what God is? I mean, they shine. like, And we we live in such an um, uncosmological world, it seems to me. Um, we, yeah. 
Well, I mean, in that respect, David Attenborough is perfect because he, I think, has tried to bring a lot of the beauty of the world back, you know, in, in his programs. I mean, the, the obvious two words that spring to mind when listening to you talk, I mean, first of all, you, you've spoken in some of your writings about this tendency to demythologize Paul. And I think there was an impulse throughout biblical studies to somehow demythologize. Or that Paul himself was demythologized. Indeed. And to kind of somehow strip I don't want to say the miraculous because that's a different conversation, <laughs> but to strip the marvel from our thinkers and how they did marvel at this world and how their experience of it, either of history or of the kind of everyday bits and bobs of life, were infused with a concept of divinity. And whether that was radical polytheism of the of the ancient Hittites and their thousand gods of Hathi, or this kind of complex monotheism that we've been talking about. It's it's just it is profoundly sacred. Now that isn't to get into these debates about secularity, because I think there is a conversation to be had about what constitutes the secular in the ancient world. And I think we should have that conversation. But to turn these thinkers into little versions of our impoverished selves is very... It's so boring to see ourselves in all of these individuals because they aren't us. And it, it just when Jesus becomes a, a hipster or when Jesus becomes you know, a bodybuilder or when Jesus becomes a biblical scholar, you know, it's just, it's profoundly nepotistic and well, not nepotistic, probably narcissistic is even worse, but it's, it's also very boring and doesn't allow that weirdness to speak. Adavi Navadar, TJ Lang, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was so much fun. That was really fun. <laughs> also really hot. Oh, I'm so did sorry. It get hot, did it get really hot yeah, in here? It got, it got it's hot it's here not today. just me. I think, it's, I think it's worse for you. I've always found recording hard. Um, I think oh, I've got too it, much in my head. Whereas yeah. like lecturing is fine because you can always like fix yourself and qualify it. You know, funnily enough, the thing that I get most nervous about, I mean, I, I had the butterflies earlier this afternoon and I don't, I don't oh, get sorry. nervous about teaching anymore. But the thing that just renders me useless is reading in church. Like, oh, I, really? I get like shaking. <laughs> I don't even mind preaching. Preaching is perfectly fine, but somehow reading Bible. Wait, you preach? You preach? I, I preached absolutely. I mean, it's in Oxford, but I preached like four okay. or five times. To um, Were you like on a? Are you ordained? Or how, no, do, how does that no, work? No. She's not a Christian at all. I'm not a Christian. Oh, is this at All Souls? No, no. It's just I I was invited to give a Sunday night sermon at uh, Evensong. Um, <laughs> I talked about Deuteronomy once, and I talked about the gods, and, you know. Uh-huh. That's, I mean, that's cute. Why not? As long as I don't have to talk about Jesus, it's okay. And you prayed one time at Thanksgiving. Yes, and yeah. Who did you pray to? Do you believe in God? Probably. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, or how about this? Because you would have a much better, You. it seems like you would have a much more, like you could answer that question more quickly than the vast majority of people because you know exactly the options, yeah. all the options, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, part of the reason why I, I just, I can't, I just think it's too presumptuous to say that there is no God. I just, it just is a, a profound act of human hubris. And so it leaves me as an agnostic. And I play classical music, play the cello. It's just the most divine thing in the entire world. I mean, oh, holy shit. It's just amazing. So, yeah. 
I have to rush off because Michael's picking me up. We have to just go. Sorry, I've been. I, you know, you know how uh, Melvin Bragg keeps the tape running afterwards. Yes. So I've been doing that. Yeah. Would you mind if I like? Would Would you like the stuff you said about like preaching and uh-huh. and believing in God? Can no, I include that? Of course. All right. Yeah. Fantastic. Those are some of the best bits. Oh, I, love I know. Them. I know. Yes. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. (laughs) 